Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about principles of tensegrity. Tensegrity is this really important topic to go into. It ties really nicely into our first module of variability. It's the premise that we have to look at the body in a different manner in order to really prepare it. That we live in a three-dimensional world, that if we completely have this binary association with origins, assertions, and muscle actions, that will be fine. That is a huge underservice to yourself and your athletes that you work with. It's going to be a really hard topic to kind of dive through because you'll get you'll get challenged on certain beliefs, you'll get challenged on certain things that you worked really hard to learn. And as we talked about with levers, as we talked about with anything, it's only a part of the the picture. And we need to take a big snapshot out and we need to get a lot closer. Everything is fractal. So take some time with this. Make sure you get over to the website, phpodcast.com. If you're not a member, I highly suggest you become a member and get access to our curriculum, which now has two CEUs associated with from NSCA. That will help a ton with understanding and learning this. Which leads, leads me into my next point. We are now approved by NSCA for two CEUs. So if you are a member and you want to maintain your accreditation, you can get easy two CEUs by going through our curriculum. And it's going to be a really high value on itself and it's going to go through some topics. And if you read Strength Deficit, if you've gone through any of the other podcasts, you know that we're going to go pretty deep on a lot of topics and we're going to go into some areas that I don't think a lot of strength coaches are exposed to. So it's going to be a ton of value there. We have a forum where you can ask questions, communicate with other coaches, network, etc. I have opportunity to ask some questions on strength deficit, review some certain aspects. I'm constantly on there to kind of go through some other areas that are coming up or that I've wanted to dive into a little bit deeper based off the module or just, you know, hey, like trying this out and I want to share this with the world. So if you uh, become a member now, get access to all of 50 modules and incredible information and uh, only more to come out. Also, we have our book Strength Deficit available for retail. That's over at phpodcast.com as well as Amazon. A lot cheaper at phpodcast.com. So if you want to save a little bit of money, get the paperback, go ahead, get that on, on phpodcast.com. If you want to get that hardcover and you want to get that more user or that uh, specialty edition, a little bit more money, but also same great information. Lastly, we have a course coming out called Practical Guide to Strength Deficit. Big feedback I got was very good book. Got a lot of great testimonials, a lot of really high-level people telling me that they really enjoyed it, but it's very technical, and it's hard to hard to apply because it's just so technical. So it's kind of created a, a great opportunity from now we have our technical guide with Strength Deficit, the book, and we're going to create the user guide or the companion guide to applying in your setting. And we're going to go into a lot of different areas, but it's broken up into six different sections. First is models, the models that influence strength deficit and how we created it. Next, it goes into, into this uh, testing and KPIs. After that, we go into physiology and biomechanics. And then we finish off with really probably the most important parts for the people that want to learn how to practically apply it. Programming, both increasing and decreasing the deficit, and then practical considerations all the things I had to learn the hard way and sharing that with you guys and basically exercises and protocols all for you to implement within your setting. So if you like the book, if you got the book, highly suggest you get that course as well because I think that will bring a ton of value to you. So a lot of great things at phpodcast.com, get a curriculum, get CEUs, get the book, get the most robust 
framework for improving eccentric versus concentric strength in, uh, with athletes, and they get the companion guide, the practical course to go with it. Lastly, realize.me, it is our command center for all health and wellness data. I was just able to pull or sequester some labs and I've been running some experiments. I got some blogs I'm writing out. So really exciting stuff going on there. This is, this is your dashboard to handle all of your information and just put it on one single frame that you can see and say, okay, I'm doing a great job here. I can improve there. I use it daily. Uh, it is a huge tool for me and I use it with a lot of my clients and it's been a huge tool there. Highly recommend it. Realize.me, get on there now, get access to their beta and they're gonna go through a little bit more stuff and integrations and you're on the ground floor, probably one of the most innovative and honestly, probably one of the best tools you'll have as a strength coach. So realize.me. All right, guys, let's stop my preamble here. Let's get to work on this one because we got a lot to unpack. So tense agreed principles, let's hit it. So let's get into this. This is gonna be a really challenging topic from the lens that it's a paradigm shift from the way most of us learned about training and the human body. So you gotta go back to where we learned really how the body organizes itself and how it functions within a traditional, or traditional educational approach of anatomy and physiology. And one of the biggest, most probably accepted ways of teaching that is looking at this in two dimensions, right? It's just easier to sit in your home with a book and reviewing origins, assertions, actions, and just memorizing. And the thing that unpacks there is we have a really good appreciation for, for the architecture of the muscle. And if you've ever done the research on how anatomy and physiology really came to be, it's pretty interesting and pretty fascinating. Uh, guys like literally Leonardo da Vinci kind of started to break down cadavers, uh, other amazing, amazing anatomists and people who just were curious had the courage to go in and examine cadavers and look at, look at the body as a whole. But one of the things that was probably omitted and missed was, you know, there's other tissue that was hard to explain like fascia and fascia is an interesting thing because fascia has this context that, it could easily fall into just connective tissue or sheath that just goes around a muscle. Um, it could be just this inert layer that does nothing from the perspective of a person trying to break down anatomy and try to create a curriculum, so to speak. And think about that for a second. Put yourself in a person in shoes trying to create a curriculum to teach either future medical doctors or orthopedics or someone that's trying to do more with the human body. And then flash forward couple hundred years and exercise specialists are now taking that information like gospel and trying to connect the dots of movement and training and changing someone's body composition or force generating capabilities, etc., based off this 2D model. So we're reading these books, we're memorizing origins, insertions, actions, 
uh, where muscles are located, what's the antagonist, synergist, stabilizer, etc. And we go off and we go off and try to make sense of of getting results with our clients and athletes and trying to look at this objectively and say, no, that's the truth. This is where this originates and inserts and we go from there. And there's still a value to that. Literally, I was just on a call yesterday where we were talking about how do we create tension within a muscle. It's like, well, if you know the origin and the insertion, all we got to do is, in a sense, pull the insertion away and towards the origin and isolate that as much as humanly possible. And then we could do that. But the other part is, there's other stuff at play, right? We work in a two. We don't work in a two-dimensional model. We work in a three D model. Like the the world around us is three dimensions. And then the other part is, if you ever really look at the human body, we kind of look at this in a vertical vector. But very rarely does a muscle originate and insert in this up and down direction. Very rarely. Does even within the cells and how they're, they're structured within that muscle organize itself in a vertical or completely horizontal direction? It's a lot of times oblique or transverse and comes at this like this angle that is hard to explain and it changes. It changes as you move, it changes as you age, it changes constantly. That this this substance within our body that creates contractile force is not this easy to explain two-dimensional binary thing. It's very challenging. And we kind of lost, we lose it when we start to under, try to figure, figure out how do we decrease, decrease injuries or how do we stabilize in the frontal or transverse plane. So as we're gonna go through this, you know, you're almost gonna have to pause, stop, and say, okay, is this contrary to what I believe based off this notion of that's the way we've taught ourselves? Or is this got some semblance of truth and there's an element of I need to detach from the, the method of which I learned in order to fully embrace and understand this concept. And again, uh, disclaimer here, you know, and this is true for pretty much every one of our modules. Other than principles, everything is essentially a model. And all models are wrong, but some are useful. So as we go through tensegrity, as we go through understanding levers, as we go through anything that might be quote unquote controversial, you as the user have to say, this is situationally dependent and this is also context dependent. And I need to have some perspective on where this fits in because if I don't, then it's gonna have a really big problem and interface, right? Just like the 2D representation or looking at levers in the human body. They're true on paper, but in practical application, there's some shortcomings, but it doesn't make it less valuable. It doesn't make it less, less desirable to learn. And in fact, I think most people still need to go through that. I just think we need to have this teasing in and out of what we call functional anatomy or this anatomy that translates better to the human world and, uh, and we can have a better discussion. But at the heart of fascia, and I think fascia is kind of getting this like connotation of concepts like anatomy trains created by Thomas Myers, which is a rolfing, a rolfing uh, kind of system, if you ever looked into that. And then tensegrity, which is an architectural design, right? So if you've ever seen a suspension bridge, that is a concept of tensegrity. We're going to open up with tensegrity. Tensegrity is the interplay of tension and compression. 
What does that mean? It's this dance between tension and compression that provides us with this concept of compressional discontinuity. So as we look through that line and we kind of break this down, you, know, you got to remember in your head, tension, tension, tension. What creates tension? Contractile forces, right? Not contractile tissue. Compression. Where do things get compressed? Okay, well, we have joints. Joints can be compressed. Joints can be expanded. So as we start to understand how do we, how do we organize ourselves? How do we move in a three-dimensional world? How do we withstand incredible forces in all planes and vectors? Well, we need to understand that the, the simple concentric, isometric, eccentric action of a muscle group isn't that, isn't, isn't that transferable the way we want it to be, unless we're on a stationary machine. The idea that as we look at the human body and how it organizes itself and how it creates strategy of movement from a neural development standpoint, right? If you have kids, you see this every single day. If you work with young children, you see this every single day. If you work with athletes that have limited exposure to, to these you know, foundational patterns of running, jumping, hopping, skipping, rolling, tumbling, tossing, throwing, like then you're gonna sit there and say, how did they not learn this? And watching them go through that experience and seeing their way of organization is hard. It's it's hard to watch. But the other end, it's it's the departure from this two-dimensional anatomy sphere. It's looking at it from, huh, they can't create tension or they can't create this compressive-like forces. And what happens, this is a very wonky or very aberrant pattern, right? And uh, I, I, I got to pause here for a second because there's a, there's a larger play here. And as we start to look at stuff like neural developmental sequencing and motor learning and going into this other paradigm of Bernstein's law, no two movements are the same, we have to be objective about this, that every single baby learns to locomote the same way the same exact way. So to sit there and say that everything is just, everything is just in nature completely random and completely chaotic is kind of a, kind of a stretch. It's a stretch. There is a per very, very, very organized and specific manner in which a baby goes from a supine to sideline, elbow post, prone, rocking, crawling, half kneeling, standing, walking, and then as it goes through further from this infant to baby to toddler stage, they learn developmental patterns in very, very predictable ways. Boys learn to throw before girls. We start to learn to skip and bound and jump and hop in certain periods of our life. We start to learn, develop, we start to learn specific skills in our sports or activities at certain ages better than others. There's a hardwired transfer of information from our cortex or motor cortex to our body to move 
that happens in certain various ages. And there's an interplay here. A lot of the interplay is when we are physically and emotionally ready to handle some of these things. We go through puberty and we can we can produce more androgenic hormones and we can create more contractile tissue. So therefore we start to transfer into more robust activities. We have these huge shifts in neuroplasticity and we can learn movements a little bit more freely because the game is on, right? You think about as a species, we start to move into having to bring value relatively early. We're the latest, we're the latest locomotives of any mammal in the world. A every other mammal, and granted, we're probably the the rarity of being a bipedal locomotive species versus a quadruped or quadrupedal species like a cat or dog or horse or whatever else runs on four legs. But the idea is that we got to be able to start moving to provide at a relatively young age, more so than we think, versus other animals. They need to survive predators, so they need to be able to run right out of the womb. And the gestation phase has a big part of this and everything else. But as we're looking through this, and I want to say this in a deliberate manner, the way a baby, which has very little muscular tone and tension-creating ability, learns to move is this concept of compression. We're going to go through this in another module, but it's called centration. Stabilizing joints in order to locomote and move others. And within that, there's a concept of joint by joint. Certain joints are designed to be stabilization. Certain joints are supposed to be movement. And it's not this binary thing. And that changes in depending on our position and orientation is base. And one of the cool things about looking at the difference between species, the zoology type approach is that joint by joint approach changes when we have a different base support. So if we have two feet in the ground, okay, well, this alternating sequence of ankle, hip, shoulder needs to be mobile, and then knee and lumbar needs to be stable. You know, well, maybe that changes when we have knee and hand on the ground. And all of a sudden, we're now all fours in a quadruped position. That knee needs to be, needs to be mobile, and that hip needs to be stable. That wrist needs to be mobile. That elbow needs to be stable. And as we start to move and locomote and do all these things, like, well, okay, we have to start to think about this from a level of back again to anatomy. That the muscular tissues that are moving us in a functional way is different than just pulling the insertion closer to the origin. It's just different. And as we start to look at spatial awareness and control in all three planes and vectors, and just for review, three planes are sagittal, transverse, and frontal, and the vectors are horizontal, vertical, and rotational, and they are different, and they do have a, a unique thing that we need to accommodate as we move and locomate, locomote. But as we start to look through the idea of tensegrity, and again, it's this dance between compression and tension to create compressional discontinuity. Compressional discontinuity. Compressional discontinuity. That idea comes into, we are in this discontinuous compressional strategy constantly. That we are always adopting this stabilization to move and locomote 
and relying on other tissues to contract and create tension. And it comes back to fascia. Fascia is fascia is a simultaneously compressing and tension based agent that there is actually contractile tissue in there, not in the way that we think from a sarcomere. And for the folks out there looking at a sarcomere, that is essentially a theory. It is a good theory. It's pretty held up over time, but it's a lot of ways a theory. It's a part of what we look at from a muscle cell and how we move and how we create contractile forces. But if we can shift gears a little bit and think about maybe that's not the only way a tissue shortens. That as one aspect of it lengthens, the other one has to have some sort of response to that and creates this web of tightening. And if we look at it from a this like web-like structure throughout the body that as one expands, the other one tightens. You know, you can think about the, the old school Chinese finger trap where they you pull on both ends and the middle comes tightened. That's fascia. That it becomes more stable the more it's stretched. It's an amazing concept because as we start to look at the human body and we start to compare it to other architectural structures and models, it's a lot less like a just a bridge with a base. It's more a lot like a suspension bridge. It's pulling in guy wires in a bunch of different areas. But one of the things that is so important about tensegrity, it's the, the aspect that empty spaces within the body allow us to propagate force, extremely high forces, which as we start to break down a baby moving from the ground to upright, they are incurring, incurring the forces of gravity at a higher rate than they ever had to do being suspended in fluid for nine months. And it's the maintenance of space within that joint capsule that allows us to function optimally. Tensegrity, it is compression and tension which maintains space and enables the ability to justify the forces we handle from a baby all the way up to being an adult. And watching a child learn a movement pattern for the first time and fumbling all around and putting all of their joints and ligaments at the end range of their capacity and having enough pliability because they still not produced a ton of androgens at this point and they're not creating a ton of contractile tissues and that doesn't alter their tension and compression relationships so they can learn to locomote freely. We can start to look at this in a different light. We can start to think about this as an idea of, of, of is this just now fascia and the organization of that fascia, as Thomas Myers would talk about in anatomy trains, the joints and their function from being a hinge joint, looking at flexion extension, but also has a rotational capacity. Or looking at a, you know, a ball and socket joint, that, which has a 360 degree sphere of, of movement. We can start to think again about, all right, these joints are organized in a certain way. This, this connected tissue is organized in a certain way. Like looking at the connected tissue within a hinge joint, very rarely it's running in this flexion extension type of direction, right? You look at the ACL, the PCL, the MCL, the meniscus, everything in the knee. You look at the old one collateral ligament. You look at all the ligaments within the elbow. It's not propagating forces in this up and down manner, this flexion extension manner. 
it's stabilizing in the planes of motion that we're trying to trying to be good within a three-dimensional sphere. That is a powerful thing to kind of think about here. That is a that is an important note because again, as we come back to the top, nothing runs in this like very two-dimensional sphere, and we have to understand that that's going to stop us from really being able to apply. Oh, just flex the knee and get the hamstring stronger or extend the knee and get the quad stronger. There's a lot different stuff going on and there's a lot more that we have to understand and explain before we start to think about how this really, really functions. But as we start to look at compression, compression is a space maker. Compression makes space. And I know that might feel counterintuitive. We're going to dive into that a little bit more. Tension is a space retainer. Again, that might feel counterintuitive. But again, we need to look at this interplay of tension and compression allows us to maintain the amount of space we need to receive and react to loads appropriately. So the best way I can relay this information, if you ever remember the fight between Ali and Foreman, the rumble in the jungle, and one of the strategies Muhammad Ali utilized was this idea of the rope-a-dope that you have this absolute monster with George Foreman at the peak of his boxing prowess. If you're not familiar with George Foreman, he actually won a heavyweight title at like 55, at a, or maybe 50, but very old age. Uh, he was a phenomenal boxer. He had amazing power. No one's ever seen anything like this before. He was just knocking people out with one blow. So, Muhammad Ali had this amazing idea of, I can absorb those forces by leaning against the rope, that he can wear himself out in a very hot and very humid environment and throwing punches is extremely hard, but the forces would not be absorbed by him per se. It'd be absorbed by him while leaning against the rope and that force would be propagated through that rope to the, the turnstile. Think about that. That's fascia. We run, we change direction, we land, etc. Forces are coming from the ground constantly. We have enough of a strategy between our compression or our space makers and tension or space retainers to handle three to four times X every single time we take a step of our body weight of forces. That's a lot of force. So if I weigh 200 pounds, there's thousands of newtons of force coming at me. Every single step. That interplay gives us the ability to move through space with certain freedoms without compromising force. I can run at full speeds, change direction, and it's not going to be completely this ending strategy. But it's the idea that we need to go through and we need to look at this again as this uh, departure from two-dimensional anatomy. One of the areas that's so important we'll talk about in, in our levers conversation module is that at a certain point you need to depart from the idea that lever systems are actual thing. And when we really look at a lever, it just basically a joint trying to control fluid within it. And that the lever arm is moving closer to the to the moment arm and 
that space in between, the more we can maintain it, the more that degrees of freedom is going to be upheld. So these bones or these compressional agents are really trying to do the job of maintaining the space within the joint. And what happens there is fluid moves more freely. And we control that fluid with our tension agents or our contractile tissue and our, and our connective tissue to move without any, any limitation. And I mean limitation by we can overcome gravity, we can react to forces we put onto it, landing and changing direction or stepping, any kind of matter. And then as we start to break this down, is that maintenance of space or that maintenance of compressional discontinuity, how we handle pressure within that joint. So as we start moving, fluid starts moving. Fluid within the joint starts moving. And the more space we have, the more degrees of freedom we'll have, but the more fluid we move from one, one direction to the other. Fluid, fluid goes to the open angle. Just for the sake of simplicity, as I start to flex my elbow, so I'm bringing the ulnar radius closer to the humerus, that fluid's gonna be moving towards the posterior aspect of that elbow. And as I start to extend or move that ulnar radius away from the humerus, fluid will go to the open angle in front, to the bicep side, and it's just gonna keep moving back and forth. It's like an accordion. Basically, you're just moving air in and out. We're moving fluid from one end of the joint to the other. And the more we have space, the more that fluid moves freely. And the compressional agent, the the, the bone or potentially even the connective tissue. And I'm kind of saying these things in a way that might be confusing, but if we look at it from anything from the idea of if it, if it compresses, then it's probably not contractile. But the other end, if it tenses, it probably is contractile. But we have this weird inert tissue that's not inert, but we have this weird tissue that it's hard to define that does both with fascia. It can maintain space and it can retain space. It can create compression. It can create tension. It's everything. It's an amazing thought. It's potentially the key to the inner universe. It could potentially be anything that we want it to be. But it takes a step back and say, all that work I did to memorize every bone, muscle in the body, every single connective tissue, then that actually might not be as important as we once thought. And that's hard. That's a really big problem to kind of go through. But it's the maintenance of space, again, that allows us to handle that pressure. As fluid is flowing, we have the ability to handle more variance and go all the way back to module one. It's the variability of any system which allows it to be more resilient that as Darwin would put it the strongest doesn't survive the most capable of withstanding change is the one that has the most ability to survive that's that's the unfortunate truth about developing physical qualities is as I get better at developing force or speed or work that won't be the reason why I'm more resilient it would be my ability to withstand more of my environment at that speed producing that much force or going that long than anything 
And we see this all the time, right? You see it every day with high performance, right? Ultra marathoners get a higher rate of upper respiratory and cancer than probably everyone else in the world. They have made the stress that was supposed to be eustress a poison. You know, hermesis went into effect. They break down all of their connective tissues. They break down all of their compressional agents to start to get stress-related injuries. You see those power lifters. We see spinal segments disintegrate. We see connective tissue break down. We see muscles rip. See with bodybuilders, same outcome. We see it with weightlifters. We see it everything that's pushed to a threshold. Track and field athletes, how often they tear their hamstring. As we start to look at the the overall emphasis of training and creating a paradigm that hopefully improves their ability to do what they're doing in the most linear fashion possible, the rate limiting step will probably be there, them breaking down and getting hurt. And if we're all we're looking at this in this very two-dimensional sphere and this spectrum that, oh, wow, okay, I just got them strong. I just got them fast. I just got them be able to go long. I improved the muscles that are associated with that or I improved the movement patterns that are associated with that. There's a huge missed opportunity from a tensegrity perspective, from a functional anatomy perspective, from looking at are we better at maintaining space? Are we better at creating appropriate fluid flow between joints? Are we created with standing forces and all of the other vectors and planes? Okay, well then we gotta go into this. So as we start to look deeper into this and coming back to some sort of conclusion for principles, you know, we start to think again about compressional discontinuity and this idea or this dance between compression and tension that created space combined with the compressional aspect, allows bones to absorb the forces that are placed upon it. And as we start to think about that, it's the tension created from the tissues around it, fascia and contractile tissue, that allow us to do that, combined with it's the maintenance of space through compression and not overdoing one side or the other. And we could change that narrative very quickly by doing a lot of redundant activities. That's impingement. That if we start to do certain things at a certain level, at a certain amount, with certain forces, Wolf's Law, which is laying down new tissue, compressional tissue, bones, in certain areas, based off its repetitive stress. Right? So if I was going to do a wooden dowel tapping against my shin bone for every day for months on end, eventually I'll lay down new bone. If I do it at a low enough amplitude and with a minimal amount of force, but I just do it repetitively over a period of time. And when I look at that, that bone is gotten more compressed and got some more structure for stabilizing, but it'd be less degrees of freedom because the tension agents didn't work at the same level. And we see this all the time with two primary joints, hip and shoulder. We start to develop impingement or closing off a space. Well, that's all it is. As we start to look at the impingement and going deeper into that, that that centrating ability to create this 
stability in a joint to allow other joints to move more freely or with more force or with more capability is prematurely closing off. That it's stopping before we could even start. That it's creating this blockage before. And then that other opening angle on the other side doesn't allow as much fluid to move as freely to that side. And we stop this momentum created with fluid and and movement in our inside our body and we limit range of motion and we limit control at that range. We might actually experience pain. It's the redundant activities that lays down problems. So again, keeping this idea in the back of your mind of this binary association with origins, insertions, muscle actions with what we're doing versus this more abstract and this more really complex thing. Like a lot of times I look at fascia as like the bottom of the ocean. We know it's there. We know that there's a lot of things that we don't understand or know about it, but it's kind of hard to break it down. It's kind of hard to really understand. So just kind of let it hang out there in the ether and just see what happens with it. See if we can find things organically from it. Some people are diving into it. Some people are kind of, you know, touching or scratching the surface, but they're not really pulling a whole lot. And it's a harder concept to grasp and just saying, oh, look at that muscle. That's a flexor-based muscle. And that brings the, hum- brings the ulnar radius closer to the humerus. That's nice. I can teach that. That's hard to say. Oh, by the way, around that, there's a sheath of, of contractile slash connective tissue that is able to create compression and tension at any given point to withstand forces in a three-dimensional world. Imagine saying that to an 18-year-old undergrad. That's a hard concept to break down, a hard concept to understand, a hard concept to explain. But it's true. It's there. It doesn't change the fact that the reality that we're living within is not 2D. It doesn't change the fact that our bones and joints aren't levers. If there were, then we wouldn't have space between our joints because a lever needs to be in contact with the fulcrum. A fulcrum is the pivot point. And if there's space and there's two floating bones, what is it? That this first, second, third class lever that we like to articulate what happens with bones when they move in space is not true. You know, think about a seesaw that's rotating in all three planes of motion. You know, it's a gyroscope. It's not a seesaw. It's not a wheelbarrow. It's not a lever system. But as I start to look at that, a gyroscope that's pivoting within a sphere inside of another sphere inside of another sphere. Well, maybe that's a different concept altogether. And those spheres are holding that gyroscope in place by compression and the the spaces that are in there allowing for that gyroscope to move. And then we could start to understand in a different manner how that might apply to human movement. And we can look at joints differently. We can look at connective tissue differently. We can look at contractile tissue differently. We can look at the the way some fashion flows, right? It's you can look at water as a really good comparison, right? And there's I think this is a, a good a good point to kind of go into because 
water has gulf streams and water flows in certain directions water could be water could be flown or a, a moved based off the surrounding structures in there right so a river goes one to what one way most of the time in the ocean there's gulf streams and there's kind of migratory patterns that create this flow of water that circulates water around the gravitational pull based off the orientation of the earth relatively speaking to the sun or, or the moon changes the height of water and pulls it in and back shifts the weight of water to one end versus the other same thing in the human body that the compression or the tension relationship allows fluid to move in a certain way but of note, there's actually a fourth form of water that we never talk about that people don't really fully ex- say is true, but it's there. Ice, vapor, water, and then this easy or gelatinous type of structure with no charge that kind of congregates around other high charge or zero charge type elements. It becomes this more gel-like substance. It's absolutely there. It's proven. What does that mean? Who knows? It can mean a cell wall. It can mean a certain cell wall that has this, this kind of membrane potential or this, this acceptor lock and key type of channel might not be true. It might be something different entirely in the hydration of our cells and the way we control charges in and out of the cell by electrolyte status might have a lot more of an impact. The way our light, the way our bodies react in the light and the, the biophotons created and the way our cells are creating light within it through, through moving of electrons, right? The mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell is creating light. It's emitting light within our, within our body. And that light has a certain impact on the cell from the inside out. But I say that not for any other reason for we should look at the human body the same way. You know, this idea that it's just easier to look at the body in two dimensions and saying, okay, just bring the insertion closer to the origin versus the absolute truth of we have this hybrid tissue that's both connective and contractile that's great tension and compression simultaneously at any given moment to allow for this concept of compressional discontinuity to allow us move not just in this forward up and down direction it allows us to move in this triplanar type of approach we can handle three-dimensional forces because at any given moment the tissues around certain joints that are mostly flexion extension have the ability to resist rotation or resist lateral flexion based off their obliqueness or their transverseness and their interaction with the other tissues around it. And that's a pretty, pretty heavy concept to dive into. As we start to look at this again, though, and we start to think about this from more of a 10,000-foot view, it's variability that's the king. It's our ability to handle more. 
again, the one that survives is the one that can adapt to its environment. It's not the biggest, not the strongest. There's always some other bigger, stronger forces out there. So as we start to think about this from a dynamic of how do we survive, it's our adaptability. It's our resilience to stress. And fascia and compression discontinuity, maintaining compression and tension, tensegrity, the dance between those two, is that shift. So I'm going to pause right here. And I'm going to really hopefully lay down the main roads for a practical next week because this hopefully will come together nicely for you. But as you start to think about, you know, quote unquote, the, the next steps here, you know, take a moment and think about how you learned anatomy and ask yourself, am I married to that because it was really hard and I had to work through that? Or am I married to that because I think that's an absolute truth about how the human body interacts with the world? And that's the first step. If you can get past that hurdle, it's going to be really fun. And we're going to anatomy trains and some other really cool things. If it's hard to get past that, then, you know, looking at different tools and implements or different different vector or, or cardinal plane-based training is going to be, what's the point? I don't get it. It seems stupid. It seems, seems unnecessary. In that sense, yeah, you probably, at that point, you're, the stage of what you're learning, it's, yeah, then it's fine. It's, it is what it is. But I implore you to really think about why you believe that as opposed to just kind of like knocking it down. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you guys. Make sure you go over to phpodcast.com. The curriculum is stacked. I mean, it is absolutely stacked. And I have a lot of graphics and obviously the written word to go with this. And I think that will help out a lot with the concepts we're explaining. But I really appreciate you guys. I hope everything's going great out there. And then we'll see you guys next week.